0: We began our worship this morning with a reading from Genesis, the story of creation. This familiar text reminds us again and again through its repetition that what God created, God saw as good. Now you may or you may not know that there is a second story of creation in Genesis. It starts at Genesis chapter 2 verse 5. And it tells things a little bit differently than the first story of creation does. When I first learned of these two stories side by side, I was a little perplexed as to what to do with this truth, this reality of these two tellings of creation. I had grown up in a relatively conservative Christian household, and although my parents were radical on the spectrum, I had never been shared or told the fact that there are two creation stories, and they even conflict with each other a little bit in telling how it goes. And so I wondered what to do with this truth, this fact. And I had an epiphany in realizing that there was no one there writing it down. Whether the first creation story or the second one found in Genesis, there was no one recording exactly how it went as it was happening. We have creation stories in our scriptures to help us give meaning to life, meaning to the world that we know. Religion does that. It gives us the truth of meaning. There is another way of describing how all of this came to be, and that is through the Big Bang Theory. Now, you may know that this developed because the earth itself seemed to be explaining it all. Because of what was found as soil was turned over and things were discovered and ways of knowing were applied to that which we then were receiving, we came to see that there there were things older than 4,000 and something BCE. So the earth itself seemed to be begging for another way of describing how all of this came to pass. Barbara Brown Taylor in her little book, The Luminous Web, Essays on Science and Religion, gives a brief synopsis of this discovery. She writes about it, and if you will uh, hold with me, I'm going to read it to you, this brief summary of this discovery of the Big Bang model. Back when the Big Bang model was first conceived, she writes, early in the 20th century, so in the early 1900s, What scientists really needed was some evidence of cosmic background radiation. If the universe had begun with as big a bang as they thought, then some heat from that explosion should still exist. This notion occurred independently to at least three working groups of physicists, including two in Princeton, New Jersey, Robert Dickey and James Peebles, and in 1964, when Dickey and Peebles were busy building a microwave horn that might allow them to detect the radiation, there were two astronomers in Holmdel, New Jersey, Arno Penzias and Robert Wilson at Bell Laboratories, who were developing an antenna to track the same evidence. They were having trouble with their antenna, Penzias and Wilson. No matter where they pointed it, it picked up an irritating static that they could neither get rid of nor explain. When they found pigeons nesting inside the antenna, they thought that they had found their problem. After evicting the birds and scraping up a substantial layer of their droppings, the astronomers taped the joints of the antenna and got back to work. But the noise was still there. It was there during the day, at night, in winter and summer, whether they aimed the antenna at the earth or out the Milky Way. When Penzias complained about the sound to a colleague who knew what Dickey and Peebles were doing in Princeton, everyone began to put two and two together. Penzias called Dickey. Dickey drove to Homedell. The two teams got together and realized that what they were hearing was nothing less than the hiss of fossil radiation still echoing from the Big Bang. Furthermore, the temperature of the sound was 2.7 degrees, which was the same value predicted a decade earlier in the 50s by George Gamow and his colleagues Ralph Alpher and Robert Herman. Penzias and Wilson won a Nobel Prize for their discovery of cosmic background radiation, which effectively launched the science of cosmology. About 30 years later, in 1992, the astronomer George Smoot told reporters that it was, quote, like looking at the face of God. Like looking at the face of God. I'm struck by his description. Perhaps those were the best words he could think of to use to describe something that could overwhelm us, and its grandness, and its beyond-conceiving nature. Something too big for the mind to conceive of, and yet, even as it could overwhelm us, it doesn't. Looking into the face of God. I'm also struck by the fact that he uses a reference to God. It's not a given, you know. To reference God when you're talking about that which is beyond conception, but for him God was the way he makes meaning out of that which he's navigating. The science that he was engaging gives him the facts, but it's his religion that gives him the meaning. That's what religion does for us. It gives us meaning for this world. It helps us with the ethics of understanding how to engage this world. Because you know, there are lots of constructs of meaning, not just religion. We can use a construct that's financial based. We can value things based on their financial worth. We can give them meaning based on finances. We can construct meaning from our identity, our gender identity. We can construct meaning from our racial identity from our cultural identity, from our political identity. There are numerous ways to construct meaning. But we as Christian people, we are uniting ourselves with one another to construct meaning out of the living God, from our very own faith, our Christian faith, the God that we know as three in one. The best words that we've come up with our Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Somehow, we have to use our own language to even convey this infiniteness that we don't even know. Religion gives us the opportunity to construct meaning of the world. And indeed, we need that as we remember that God, in our own faith tradition, we understand that God has made us co creators with God's self. We heard it in our reading this morning from Genesis, but we also know it deeply within ourselves. I happen to have turned on the radio at opportune times in the last 10 days or so. Both of those times, I heard a scientist being interviewed about DNA modification. The first interview was of a scientist in some um, institute or school or something up here in this part of the world who has been studying mice. And whether or not DNA can be shifted so that the mice become resistant to Lyme disease because I learned from the scientist it's mice that make Lyme disease so prevalent they're the ones that run around with it and so he'd been doing research to modify the DNA of mice in such a way that that modification would be passed down from to their babies and to their babies generation to generation and it would be resistant to Lyme disease." You can imagine the conversation of the interviewer and the scientist. The scientist talked about taking it to the communities or a couple places up here on the shore of Massachusetts that have an, um, a really large amount of people that have Lyme disease. And so he thought he would bring this idea into that com- those communities to see if people were interested in the possibility of releasing mice into those communities that are resistant to Lyme disease. And you can imagine there is hesitation. What happens when you release something into the created order and they will then continue to create? What happens and can we even conceive of what could happen? One idea they're playing around with is possibly doing it on an island where there aren't people and using that as a little test ground. But again, we don't even know what all could happen. I was very um, consoled when I heard the scientists say that no action would be taken until everyone could feel a sense of a willingness to go forward. It was just of too great of a magnitude to unleash. About a week later, I heard yet another interview with another scientist about DNA modification. And she said, You know, we have to think about all the ramifications of this action before we put it in motion. And I thought to myself, Can we? Is it even possible to conceive of all the ways that the future could be changed by this action? We need a construct for navigating this world, for making sense of it and for operating in it. Religion gives us a construct, and our faith as Christians gives us a construct for navigating the world. Indeed, as Christian people, we seek to make sense of this, and I remember in seminary going through an exercise about the Episcopal Church and our general convention that we hold every... um, three years, and some of the things that happen in our world and how it is that we want to relate to them as faith people. The exercise we were given back in seminary was in vitro fertilization and what to do with the eggs that were no longer going to be used by the woman who had banked them for pregnancy. It led us into a whole conversation about life and when does it start and what do we do with what God has given us You see, our faith gives us a way to engage with the world. It helps us find a way to understand how God might be working, and how we can work alongside God. And I dare say there is no way for us to conceive of all these possibilities. I think of our young people who will be honoring today, those that are graduating from high school, and you are going out into the world, and we hope that we have given you a construct with which to engage it. Because there are all kinds of ways to do life. But the Christian faith gives us a way to do life that we believe and have found to be life-giving. We describe it as the Trinity because it's what we came to know through experience which then became our scriptures. The Hebrew scriptures, which were known by the people of the time. The God that is alive and who creates all things. And then Jesus comes among creation and reveals newness in that very truth, that God is active. God did not set things in motion only to step out of the picture, but God wants to be active with that which he's created and invites us into that. And it was Jesus that said, when I leave, I'm going to give you something to accompany you going forward, the Holy Spirit. And that is, what we, that is how we describe God's action in the world these days. We only have language to do it by. And so we find ourselves in this time considering this invitation that God gives us to be in relationship with the God who is relationship, the God who was, the God who is, and the God who is to come, Christ who will return again. We talk about God as the creator, God as the redeemer, God as the sustainer. Our words are the only way we can think of to express how it is that God invites us into this infinite relationship that began way before we knew anything and will continue way after we know anything. And so we turn to our scriptures, to times of prayer and study, to see the world as God is seeing it. We ask God to illumine illumine us, hope in our eyes, to see how God is working in the world so that we can be a part of that too because we do not know what the future holds, but we believe that God is giving us the means to engage in a life-giving way. The Trinity reminds us that God is always giving to us, receiving from us and giving back again. The living God has invited us into this relationship. And in that, we discover that we are all one, created by God, redeemed by God, sustained by God, now and forever. Amen.